Hello, friends. Welcome to 1000 Words, Stories on the Way. My name is Matthew Clark. Thanks for being here. Uh, Before I get started, I want to say thanks for supporting this podcast by listening, leaving reviews, and sharing it with your friends. I really appreciate that. It really encourages me. Um, I, I really hope this podcast can kind of shine a little light in the world or be a dash of salt for somebody. Um, This is where I put things that are helping me, kind of helping me keep faith, helping me keep trusting Jesus, helping me stay engaged in what's most true. So if you find this podcast helpful in any of those ways, please do leave reviews. That promotes visibility within iTunes and all that. And then, uh, yeah, recommend it to your friends, share it on Facebook and so forth. Speaking of that kind of thing, something I want to recommend to you, my friends, is Anselm Society's Online Imagination Redeemed Conference. It's going on right now, and I've been eating it up. It's so encouraging. It's been so life-giving for me this week. Um, I so badly need to see um, living examples and to hear good stories of how life can be more than I would have thought possible. Um, Amy Lee mentioned how easy it is to be like hobbits in the tiny realm of the Shire. They have no idea what a massive and glorious world that they're a part of. And I so quickly forget that my little life is being called upon to participate in a vast and noble reality. And just like the hobbits, they can't see Gondor or Rohan or Rivendell from their vantage point in the Shire. But they're still a part of it. And so are we. There is this soaring and profound music from beyond the world at work. And we, here and now, are invited to lend our voices to its making in this place. So... Go to imaginationredeemed.com and sign up for the conference. It's only $35, and it's tons of material. Uh, I really believe in passing on good stuff when I come across it, so please do check that out. Uh, And having mentioned Imagination Redeemed, I'll say that this week's episode is very much inspired by the talks I've been listening to there. Uh, They've been a kind of sobering reminder Uh, and a kind of invigorating wake-up call to stay on pilgrimage, to keep pressing in and pressing on toward the joy that's been set before us. I almost constantly have to fight against apathy and this sort of fear-fueled passivity. Um, Author S.D. Smith, he said that he mistook his own tendency to withdraw for humility and shyness, when it was actually pride and fearfulness. And I have a strong desire to quietly fade and disappear when God is calling me to sing boldly. Um, So I'm writing today as as kind of a way of planting a flag in the soil so that I can look to it and remember to stay present and stay engaged. Um, 
So, here is this week's episode, The Yoke of Glorious Engagement. Teddy Roosevelt's famous man-in-the-arena speech, in part, goes like this. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Most recently, Brene Brown has taken up that phrase, daring greatly, from this speech and named her book after it. That book has been sitting, borrowed and unread, on my shelf for a long while now, and I point to it only as evidence that this speech clearly continues to have deep resonance with a lot of people all these years later. To go further back, though, I think of Odysseus and the Lotus Eaters. Humanity has always had to fight the temptation to disengage from the worthy fight, to be lulled into passivity and languish in the bleary false comfort of apathy and ease. At the same time, a thing is not good just because it's difficult, nor bad just because it's easy or pleasant. For instance, workaholism may be difficult and bad. Perfectionism may be demanding and merciless. Dancing may be easy and life-giving. Watching the sunset or the stars glimmer are both easy to do and deeply redemptive ways of staying engaged and present to life. I remember someone pointing out that when Jesus says his yoke is, quote, easy, he means that the yoke is fitting. Yokes are wooden harnesses that link two oxen together so they can work in the field side by side. And if the yoke is ill-fitted, it will chafe and tear the skin of the animal's neck and damage it. The context of Jesus' comment is work, but work that gives rest, because it is working in a way that fits just right. To be at work with Jesus, deeply engaged in life with him in the arena, is fitting work. It's work that doesn't chafe or tear the skin, because it fits. So here's the full quote. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
Jesus seems to be saying that we need to be deeply engaged in life. There is good, life-giving work to be done. And there are ways of working that don't give life, that actually do damage. The rest and the easiness that come with being yoked to Jesus and His work promote neither passive repose or anxious striving. I'm bringing all of this up as a sort of personal confession. One of the most resonant and persistent parables of Jesus in my own mind for a long time now has been the parable of the talents. I'm haunted by a feeling of untapped potential or unrealized potency that has been shut up in a little coffer and buried safely under layers of fear and passivity. But there are so many ways to justify my aloofness. I'll admit, one way, being plowed up by the oxen in the field of my own heart, is a fear that takes the form of avoidance through a sort of victim mentality. Victim mentality says, everything bad is someone else's fault, and everything good is someone else's job. Do you see how that makes growth impossible? It justifies a kind of unresponsiveness to one's own life. If everything bad is someone else's fault, then blame and complaining take over, and we become happily helpless towards our own lives. Irresponsibility is really a way of giving someone else possession of what ought to belong to us. It's a form of willful enslavement. And if everything good is someone else's job, that works in much the same way, since we put any possibility to initiate healing, change, or growth in someone else's court. The result is paranoid bitterness. Paranoid literally means to be outside of one's own mind. Para means beside, and noia is the word for mind. My good friend Tom has a phrase he used to pray over me. He'd say, I pray that you stand up in your own life. Isn't that great? To stand up in your own life. Sally Clarkson has a book titled Own Your Life, which gets at the same idea. But irresponsibility and victim mentality do the opposite. They produce this resentful paranoia where instead of standing up in, we stand outside of ourselves, beside our own mind and life, detached from it and made powerless and afraid by our unwillingness to engage and take responsibility for ourselves. That's a sad way to live. It paints everyone as a threat and a hindrance. Every bad thing, they did this to me. Every good thing, they never do anything for me. That is a yoke that is heavy and burdensome. It plants nothing but anger and harvests nothing but lonely resentment. In contrast, this week in particular... I've been deeply encouraged 
to watch a number of my friends as they've given talks during the Anselm Society's Imagination Redeemed online conference. They've told their own stories of how, in place of the old uneasiness, God's fitting yoke has been laid upon their sore, blistered necks. How deep engagement, responsiveness, and perseverance in creative investment have generated abiding goodness, truth, and beauty in their own lives and become life-giving for others. Their speech has been marked by joy, possibility, gratitude, and care. I felt such a sense of hope returning, like blood returning to a numbed foot or arm fallen asleep. Maybe you've heard of the 80-20 rule, that 20% of the people are in the arena, engaged in the fight, while 80% sit in the stands and passively watch. I look over and see my dull sword rusting quietly in the corner and my clean boots looking like they still need to be broken in. I need to keep my eyes on the warriors in the ring who've worn through several pairs of boots and a few swords already. Their willingness to take on the yoke of Jesus and labor in the field breaks the spell of languid spectatorship in me. Sarah Groves says in her song, Just Showed Up for My Own Life, There are so many ways to hide. There are so many ways not to feel. There are so many ways to deny what is real. And I? I just showed up for my own life. I think that's what Jesus is offering when he offers us a place with him in his work to be yoked to him. He's working in the ordinary materials of the common world we inhabit, and he's deeply engaged in a great work of lasting architecture, building a world without end, stacking holy stones one by one. Roosevelt's human imagination says, Guts and glory, grab a sword! Jesus' heavenly imagination says, Those who live by the sword will die by it. Maybe try hammering it into a plow instead. Paradoxically, in the kingdom of the Christ, the warriors are humble farmers. And the arena where glorious battle takes place is the field of vision hardly anyone has bothered to look at. Yet, This is where the Word through whom all things were made is cultivating a new creation of enduring significance, inextinguishable beauty, its foundations rooted in eternity, and its endlessness plowed, planted, and harvested, strangely enough, from the mundane dust of the arena floor. To close us out, I want to share a short paragraph from one of my favorite books that I just finished rereading. It's uh, Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. 
The story, if you don't know, is about an old preacher who gets married late in his life, and he has a son while he's in his 70s. So this book is a journal that he's keeping for his son to read later and and know his father. Uh, Near the end of the book, the old preacher mentions how the beauty of life lays a kind of responsibility on us to honor it, to not fail to engage with it in love. And he says this requires bravery, which he points out is a form of generosity fed on hope, which comes from faith. So here's the paragraph. Theologians talk about a prevenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a prevenient courage that allows us to be brave, that is, to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear, that precious things have been put into our hands, and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. And therefore this courage allows us, as the old men said, to make ourselves useful. It allows us to be generous, which is another way of saying exactly the same thing. But that's the pulpit speaking. What have I to leave you but the ruins of old courage and the lore of old gallantry and hope? Well, as I've said, it is all an ember now, and the good Lord will surely someday breathe it into flame again. Man, I love that paragraph. So, so my prayer is that our imaginations would be redeemed and be caused to well up with faith. And that would give us hope enough to be brave and generous and to honor the precious call Jesus has entrusted to us, to labor with him as he realizes his eternal kingdom right here in our midst. So that is all for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time.